On Inside a Mountain this time, Marcus de Sotoy, mathematician, playwright, professor for the public understanding of science, author, actor, performer, walker. And that's not even the full list. But it gives you a sense of his high-octane energy. Today, he's to be found in Springfield Park, North London, looking for a tree. I collect a tree a day, so I haven't collected today's tree. I have a little plan here of where all of these trees are. So um, if you'll indulge me, uh, we're going to go and try and find, to kick off with, I'm on to a Himalayan birch. Um, so uh, number 47 on my little map. So let's hope it's not too far away. <laughs> um, 47, 47. A prime number, so that's also nice. Um, uh, where is my Himalayan? Is that a sheer accident that it's a prime number? Did you not know that it was going to be 47? Oh, I, I didn't wait until it was a prime, no. Um, so, uh, well, I can tell you there, there are 80 trees uh, sort of classified in this park. And um, so one in four numbers is a prime number up to about 100. So there was a one in four chance you'd arrive on a prime tree day. <laughs> um, uh, but 47, where are you? 47, 47. Um, but they're all a bit randomly scattered. They certainly are. There's no yeah. kind of logic to these numbers. No, 47, there we are. Oh, we're oh. actually quite close. So it's next to the, the lodge. So yeah, follow me. Right, uh, well. Because what I do is I, um, I like to take a picture of it and the leaves. And of course, we're, we're walking in uh, end of the summer, so still <laughs> leaves on the trees. Um, actually, I started doing this in the winter and it was really difficult to identify the trees because they all look the same. Bunch um, of twigs. Yeah, a bunch of twigs. Um, and so my wife gets inundated with these pictures each day and says, I found my, my tree. Um, and it says here, it was introduced from West Himalayas in 1880. So it's got to be near this lodge. Yeah, exactly. That's not it, that's oh, for sure. Well, uh, oh, maybe gosh, it is. I think it is um, because it's kind of got that birch like bark hasn't it looks um, a bit like a common or garden silver birch really i'm a bit disappointed yeah. <laughs> well, a himalayan one you're expecting it to it be covered in snow maybe. <laughs> and, um, um anyway so uh, i think that is our himalayan birch so let me here we go my himalayan birch and i'm going to get some leaves and then it's bark and then that, that's my tree for the day <laughs> i'm the professor for the public understanding of science in oxford People think that that means I must know the whole of science, including biology, <laughs> and I'm rubbish at biology. And so in particular, things like being able to classify trees, um, I, I've never been able to do. So I would like to be able to classify the trees. So this is part of my education. Of, <laughs> um, yeah, one of my favourite books of the last few years, was it called Overworld? Is that what oh, the called? overstory. Overstory. Yes. yes, Richard uh, Powers. Exactly. It's a yeah. wonderful book. Yes. So that, that that sort of started me on my tree journey. <laughs> but, uh, so that's you've you've ticked off the work. So now we can just talk about yeah. mathematics. I, I hope you're noting I'm saying mathematics, not maths, because I've noticed you never use the word maths. I, so uh, I'm falling well into spotted. line. Yes. I don't know why you call it that. It gives it a certain glory, but I'm going to do what you do. Yes. Although people kind of laugh because I. 
I seem to do it with a slight weird accent, so I go mathematics. Or you something. do. There's a definite D in there, yeah, not a T. A, exactly. I was trying well, to explain to my daughter last night. I'm <laughs> talking to Marcus Tosotoy tomorrow, and he he loves mathematics, and she says, "Why are you saying it like that?" <laughs> I said, "It's because that's how he says it." <laughs> sure. Well, partly I do it so that everything works in America and in England, because there's this kind of weird thing. Why do they call? Why do they only have one math? I mean, yeah, that's maths. all wrong, isn't it? Math, that's nuts. <laughs> um, so it, I, it's quite useful because mathematics works both in the US and the UK. Um, so uh, that's part of the reason for it. But is there another reason? I mean, you ha- it has such an important status in your life, mathematics. Does it need those extra syllables somehow to give it the gravitas, the power? It, the, I think you're right. Uh, just to call it maths is kind of throws it away too easily. And uh, I think... Mathematics is a, a, a beautiful word and, and somehow celebrates the majesty and the, uh, the importance of this subject. Um, yeah, so I, I think there is an element of giving it respect with its full name. Full name and full respect as I watch Marcus trying to prove a labyrinthine mathematical conjecture on one of his beloved yellow notepads. As he explains what he's doing, six skinny rectangles, several arrows and two ovals, one with what looks like two bulbous eyes, appear. This is actually the first layer of an infinitely layered structure beneath each of these things. So I've also got these kind of... um, I tend to draw them as sort of rectangular blocks and you start to see more and more of these blocks as you go down the shape. Um, And I'm, I'm also trying to understand this sort of structure sitting underneath these and how they relate um uh, and this is related to kind of a what's called a piadic structure sitting inside underneath a finite structure which is an fp structure on the top um so i've got all of these things going on and there's kind of sometimes diagrams are useful in this case it has been quite useful to make the first inroads into this conjecture and try and prove um but the diagrams are running out <laughs> And becoming too complex and I'm going to have to change it into probably uh, some sort of linguistic language to, to truly navigate what's going on here. That fluidity between different forms of language is crucial. In the world, according to Marcus, mathematics uses diagrams, numbers, words, drama, science and music. It's a multilingual creative art. Oh, let me do that again. Marcus loves practising his cello, and as with everything else that he draws from, music gives him clues, breakthroughs, to ways of thinking mathematically. So that's a little bit of one of the Goldberg variations. I love the Goldberg variations because they're actually full of mathematics and the, the canons in particular which is that that was part of uh, the very first canon um have got a huge amount of mathematical tricks going on in them so um i i, I love this piece of music not just because it's beautiful but because um it's a really good example of what bach's contemporary mitzler used to say about Bach's music that bach's music is the process of sounding mathematics but much of his creative thinking emerges as he walks, like the ideas for the play he's just written and starred in, I is a Strange Loop. 
the play examines the ways that numbers and literature intersect and stars characters X and Y. It's a funny, perplexing, Beckettian encounter full of literary and numerical jokes and signifying a great deal. A Walk with Marcus is a bracing experience. The conversation swoops from Wittgenstein to maps to books about trees. He sees a whole world in a fir cone and a grain of possibility in an entire landscape. It's not tiring because it's very natural for me. So it is my, my set of glasses, it is my language, it is um, how I've been kind of trained to see the world. And uh, so for me, absolutely, as you say, these trees um, are just the most beautiful example of fractal geometry, um, the branching uh, and branching and branching. So if you take a small part of uh, the tree, it looks like it's larger part. And nature is a demonstration that mathematics is everywhere. And um, being able to see that, I think, gives you a, an extra layer of understanding. So. Does it mean that you can't look at the really broad picture, though? You can't just stand in this landscape and just look at it in its entirety? Does it have to be no. compartmentalised into pieces of geometry, into repeating fractals? I, I think, uh, you know, as with everything, if you're uh, looking at a painting, listening to a piece of music, reading poetry, one's overall impression of something only increases by looking at the detail and then stepping back. So, so for me, I, I'm not... The mathematics and the, the view that I have on the world um, just enriches uh, my experience of the whole um, rather than sort of distracting me from it. Uh, so I, I think it's you know, a whole classic thing of um, unweaving the rainbow that uh, for me, science and the insights that you get into uh, the, the beauty and the, the magic that's around us, um, revealing the, the, the trick behind the magic um, only makes the magic more impressive, I feel. So I, I, I don't uh, find that knowing why things are the way they are um, belittles their kind of majesty. I think for me, it uh, m makes me wonder more at the extraordinary kind of things that are going on around us. I must say, I, I was gripped by your description of the Carl Friedrich Gauss mathematical, well, I was going to call it trick, that's probably a bit rude, but ah, well, there, unpicking how Gauss worked out what the final number should be if you add up the numbers 1 to 100, if you add them all up together, the, the, the speed with which he was able to work out its pattern actually does add to a much more interesting number than the result itself suggests, 5,050. That's kind of neither here nor there. But yes. the means by which he got to it is rather thrilling. Yes, and... and In fact, maybe you could describe exactly how he well, did yes, get to it, for those who don't know. Yeah, this I mean, this, this is actually the story that starts off my latest book about shortcuts, um, because it reveals the, the kind of way that mathematical thinking um, is often about finding uh, a fast, efficient way to, to your destination, which is kind of curious when you compare it to what we're doing now, because... Um, we're going to go from A to A, we're going to return to where we started. You might say, well, the shortcut is just to stay at A, <laughs> so what are you doing? But, um, so the long way to do that problem is to just you know, start at one, add two to that, that's three, add another three, that's six, add another four, that's ten. That's going to take you some time, you'll probably make a load of mistakes on the way. Um, it, it's the hard way up that mountain. But what Gauss recognised at the 
you know, tender age of nine, ten, was, well, what if you combine the beginning and the end of these journeys together? So you take the beginning, that's one, and the end is 100. So one plus 100 is 101. Two plus 99 is also 101. Three plus 98 is also 101. So he realised that there are 50 of these pairs all adding up to 101, and, and so he got to that answer 5,050. <laughs> what is it about walking? Um, obviously, you were doing it in lockdown. Virtually everybody else was doing it yes. in lockdown as a, as, a, as a form of escape, a form of kind of creativity in its way, because it was making something out of nothing. But what is it, do you think, about the kind of the rhythm of the stride, the kind of the thinking time that the, the, the trudging gives one? Mm. I mean, it's so familiar to us through poetry, through great you know, Edward Thomas, Wordsworth, you know, Virginia mm. Woolf, um, Beethoven. Yes. What is it about that? rhythm of the walk that does something to the creative brain well partly for me it's a sort of um allowing my subconscious a space to to roam so um i mean i will combine working at my office at my desk at home um, where i will be with my yellow notepad trying to tease out uh how to find a kind of logical journey um, from what I know now to the conjecture I'm trying to to, to work on uh, but sometimes you need to come away from that and allow your mind to just uh, wander and I think wandering and uh, wondering uh, in a walk uh, is an essential part of my working day really and, and so many mathematicians have talked about the importance of allowing uh, uh, the subconscious a space to to roam and try ideas out and I sometimes feel a bit as if um, my subconscious is sort of playing the piano and uh, it's crashing away doing chords and it's all found sounding very discordant um, and you know when I'm walking that's the subconscious bit is still teasing away at this problem um, and then suddenly a few chords come together which uh, which work and that's the moment when my subconscious kind of elevates this to my conscious mind and, and I think that's the aha moment that many of us mathematicians talk about the feeling like oh now uh, now, now I've got it I've seen what's going on and it's almost as if I sort of feel this it's rather similar to a quantum physics experiment where if you observe the thing it doesn't have the uh, ability to try lots of possibilities but before you observe it uh, Schrodinger's cat it's dead and alive at the same time it's trying lots of different uh, possibilities when you then look then it makes up its mind um, the the time that I spend uh, I have to watch your head here because we just you probably heard a train uh, running over so uh, just going uh, under the railway this, this one, yeah, it's exactly. very low down even I have to bend right yeah, down yeah this one <laughs> it is um, I bumped my head a couple of times on this, so we've got another <laughs> railway uh, here. Um, so this will bring us out the other side. Good, here we go. As we crept through the railway underpass to the other side, Marcus explained that train journeys for him often result in mathematical breakthroughs. Images flashing through the windows on a train to Oxford once produced the aha moment in his doctoral thesis. And his latest book, Thinking Better, The Art of the Shortcut, is a sparkling journey through tunnels and tracks of thought to make us more agile, more nimble, to save time. Departure. You have a choice. 
The obvious path is a long slog with no beautiful vistas on the way. It's going to take you forever and sap all your energy, but it will at least eventually get you to your destination. But there is a second path. You've got to be sharp to spot it, veering off the main track, seemingly taking you away from your goal. Then you spot the signpost that says shortcut. This is promising a quicker off-road route that will get you to your destination faster and with minimal energy. There might even be the chance of a stunning view on the way. It's just that you're going to have to keep your wits about you to navigate this path. It's your choice. This book is pointing you towards that second path. It's your shortcut to the better thinking you'll need to negotiate this unorthodox route and get you to where you want to go. That extract from his book made me think that Marcus might have a solution to a problem of my own. My sense of direction is notoriously dreadful, tricky for someone who likes long-distance walking. Could thinking in shapes, using geometry, logic, anything, help me find my way? If Marcus walked across Walthamstone Marshes one way and I went another, would we get to the river at more or less the same time? Who would have the more creative thoughts? It was time for an experiment in getting lost. So I've set Charlie off in a direction that we haven't been in before and it's a direction which involves lots of different choices. It isn't clear which path to take um, and we came from the river and so I've set her the task of getting back to the river um, so she sort of knows where the destination is and I've told her to turn right when she hits the river and to find a bridge so I have even been known the other day I was I drove to the supermarket from my house not very not very far really and I actually got lost on the way back from the supermarket. I was just thinking about something and um, I suddenly realised I had no idea where I was and yet it's only a 10 minute car journey. I'm fascinated to see whether the idea of shape, geometry, desire lines as they're called, will help me get to the river. I'm on, this path looks quite well trodden that I'm on so I, I'm guessing other people must have decided they wanted to go to the river too. I mean, why would they want to be heading off to see some high rise in a, a bunch of pylons? Surely they'd be wanting to go to the river, wouldn't they? Okay, I think I'm going to set off because she's already wonderfully taken a separate path to the one that I would take. Uh, so there's the, the gate. Already as I come into the marshes, I've got a forking path. My, one of my favourite authors, Borges, is all about the different forking paths you can take in life. Uh, so interestingly, Charlie has taken the left-hand fork and um, my favourite way is to take the right one. So we're already right at the beginning of the walk, made two different decisions. And the interesting one that Charlie's taken is that it's more open marsh. There is another giant puddle. Listen to the squelch now. Oh, I'm going to have to sort of deviate off this because I'm literally going to be up to my ankles in a minute. Hang on, going to the next path along, which also has lots of water collecting all over it. Ooh, oh, now the, now the water's got into my shoes. Oh! Surely there can't 
can't be this much water and not be near a river, surely. I don't think I'd get a badge for reading the signs of nature. There's that book on clues about reading water. I don't know whether I want this experiment to fail or succeed. In, a, in one way, it'd be quite comical, I suppose, if it failed. But if it succeeds, what's that prove, I wonder? And I'm not as gormless about direction as I think. Actually, the other thing about it is Marcus has gone off with my recording equipment, so I'm recording this into my phone. And quite interested to see what, what he says and sees as he walks, whether he's, he literally is looking at a bunch of Fibonacci numbers as they spiral around a fur cone or something, rather than the much bigger picture which I'm looking at. So I'm looking at waving grass. I'm listening to the sound of the grass, which is, I'm always very interested in sound. This is generally the end of my run, and yeah, there's kind of some weird guy having a... Morning. Yeah, I think I caught a guy having a pee in the bushes there. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, I'm coming out into the open again, and it's a lovely little area, picnic area. We've sometimes had a party down here. I can see the river in front of me with all the barges. If I'm lost forever, at least um, I'll be able to ring him and say, help, I'm lost, I'm stuck. Oh, there's a woman up ahead with a dog. I might cheat and ask her. Oh, no, she's heading off in the other direction. Um, she'll be able to see the river quite quickly from her path. Let's open up the gate. Oh, God, it's so wet. Oh, my goodness me, it's so wet now. There's still no river. In the sun next to the River Lee and next to the bridge and see if Charlie finds us. Now the landscape up ahead is slightly changing. There's a kind of line of long grass. Could that be bordering the river? I'm just worried she's gonna end up in bow or something. <laughs> um, uh, so let, let's um, make sure. Um, of course this is Probably a recipe for disaster because there are a couple of ways she could come into the river. <laughs> uh, I guess one should never do this. One should never start um, moving around. If you say you're going to meet somewhere, stay there. Um, let me just check my Marcus is wearing very bright blue trousers, so perhaps I can cheat by looking into the distance and trying to spot electric blue legs. And he's got an orange t-shirt. That's very helpful, actually. I'm being very unhelpful. I'm wearing black. Mind you, he doesn't need help. But I don't see electric blue or orange. Well, Charlie did decide no. to do this exercise herself. Uh, Dear. About getting lost. <laughs> so, um, she might be proving her point. Um, let me just see whether I can spot her across the marshes. Actually, these marshes um, have got the most wonderful cows in them um, and these cows are quite two-toned there's like the front end is kind of two brown and back is brown and then the middle is white and the, there's actually a mathematical explanation for these cows because uh, one of the things Turing did was to understand 
morphology and the way that patterns emerge on different animals. So it's actually the geometry of the animal determines whether, for example, a leopard has spots and a zebra has stripes. Um, and these cows have a particular shape, which means that all of the pigment drifts to, to one end or the other of the cow. And you get this kind of uh, huge stripe uh, in the middle of, of no pigment and pigment at either end. And actually Turing, a uh, mathematician, was responsible for explaining this different puzzles, patterns that emerge on, on the surfaces of the animals. And well, he said it'd be about 10 minutes. And my phone says that I've been walking for eight minutes and 57 seconds. So <laughs> I would hope to get to the river soon. just go back to the bridge. Can I see, is that her over there? No. Um, gosh, I've lost our presenter. <laughs> uh, but I think she'll be having a really nice walk though, because it's a beautiful bit of marshland. See, I'm not spending any time, am I, thinking about poetry or rhythm or the works of Gerard Manley Hopkins. All I'm thinking is help. I'm lost. I bet Marcus is thinking about all sorts of interesting stuff. Oh my goodness, I can see a boat. I can see a boat. That must be the river. So there we are. There's the river. Now I've got to find the bridge. Um, so now I've found the river, perhaps I can start thinking about some poetry then. He said I've got to turn right. How do I turn right? Perhaps I go through this gate. That is a river. That, that is a flipping river. Well, it's a kind of triumph in its way. Oh, I'm going to work how to open this gate now. Well, I'm, I'm quietly wreathed in pride, you know. Quick, quick, quick. Got to think about some poetry, but got to think about something creative. Got to think about uh, an aquatint that I want to make. I've been making aquatints this week of tiny little fleeting glances of nature as you pass by on a walk. So I've been etching into miniature copper plates. I can see some electric blue trousers. I can see Marcus. Nobody else wears clothes quite like that, quite that bright. He must have put them on knowing that he would have to find this hopeless person at some point. So now he's walking towards me and I'm walking towards him. <laughs> I don't know whether he's going to be surprised that we found each other or not. I think in the billing I gave myself, he probably thinks it's an absolute miracle that I've actually managed to find him. I have to say, I do think it is a miracle myself. Hello. <laughs> Hello. I feel quietly proud. Oh, good. Well, you found, yes, I, I was a, a little worried that you might stop at that bridge because, but you'd have to turn left to go to that bridge. And I did say turn right, so it is the bridge up here. I'm afraid it's worse than that, because I got halfway down, yeah. and I just, again, had that kind of nervous crease, which is, I never, ever take the right path this And I was about to, to dive off into the undergrowth, because I didn't have faith in myself. But then it got more and more waterlogged, and I just kept thinking to myself, water equals water. Oh, very good. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, a good equation to, <laughs> to use. Yes, I suddenly was worried, because it has, um, it was a downpour during the week and uh, um, I generally run through the bit that you walked and, and I haven't been going there because it's got very boggy. But, uh, so uh, what yeah. did you discover? I found, as I was walking along, talking to myself, 
about 95% of my conversation to the world and myself was about, oh goodness me, where on earth is this flipping river? So I realised that 95% of the opportunity to be creative, I was denying myself. And now I think, I bet Marcus has thought about something really interesting and really clever and he's solved some marvellous thing and written a proof in his head. Well, no, I was worrying about you. Um, uh, uh, so it turned out that neither of us had a creative walk. The main thing we proved was that walking to fire the imagination only works when one person isn't worrying about their missing companion and the other isn't both lost and distracted by shoes full of marsh water. But perhaps topology would offer some clues as to how we find our way. We left the waterlogged marshes and struck out again across Springfield Park. Well, I was rather intrigued when I discovered this little space here. It's, it's actually, you can hear the water um, dripping in the background. It, there, it's a, actually an octagonal shape dug into the ground um, and it's got four tunnels coming off the um, four of the walls, which uh, I'm guessing yeah, connects the different reservoirs so they can fill one reservoir from another. Um, and it's just full of this beautiful green um, from the, the algae in the water. And I must say, I have fantasised about doing something like, like a little theatrical uh, performance inside here, because I think it'd be just like a really weird space with the audience um, around the outside of this um, structure. Oh, what are you going to stand on? I know, you'd have, have to be a swimmer. I don't know, actually, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it'd have to be a sort of synchronised swimming performance or something, yeah. Um, I is a strange loop in water. <laughs> Uh, but there, there is an interesting, I guess, geometric shape which is emerging here because actually if you think about all of these spaces, the reservoirs around us, um, uh, they're like kind of worlds but we've got these kind of tunnels connecting these worlds and so uh, this will have an interesting geometry to it where um, the sort of tunnel from one place to another uh, will, will get you into a new space, a little like a wormhole. And, that's interesting actually uh, in respect of um, a way that we understand shapes because it relates to walking actually. Um, because you know we're walking on the surface of the earth but we're very tiny little people and uh, we, first sight we thought the earth was flat but then we began to realize no it's round and um, uh, but actually what shape does it have? How do we know that it's actually a sphere? Why couldn't it have been a uh, a bagel shape, you know, a, a, what we call a torus in technical language, or a donut, one of Homer Simpson's donuts. Why couldn't it have had a hole in the middle? How could you tell? How could you tell as a, as a small little person on this surface um, what shape you're living on? Well, actually, walking is the way to tell because on the surface of the earth, if I set out on a sphere, then every path that I set out on, um, if I make a path and I come back to the beginning again, then I set off in a different direction, I will always cross my first path um, somewhere along the way um, and then come back to the beginning again. And actually you know you're on a sphere if that's always true, that the paths, if you go set off in a straight line, don't sort of wander around, that you'll always cross the path you started on. On a donut, that's completely different. The journeys you can make on a do donut just think about, um, I could first of all just go around the outside of the bagel or the donut, or I could do something else. I could uh, set off and go uh, on, on a loop through the center and back. Those two journeys do not cross each other. 
So that's how you can tell that you're on the surface of a bagel uh, shape rather than a sphere. So uh, this is um, a subject in topology that these journeys, these walks you can make around a shape um, are, are really important ways of telling what what the shape is without having to come off the shape and look from outer space and see the hole. And so you actually tell how many holes there are because the journeys have a different quality to them. For a man who's written so many books, it's surprising that as a child he didn't like reading. But a school teacher gave him Tove Janssen's books about the Moomins, the shortcut to reading he needed. He still loves the Moomins. How perfect that Springfield Park has figures of Moomins dotted amongst the trees. As we walked on the lookout for Moomin Troll, Marcus compared the pace of a walk with the rhythm of a mathematical solution. You have to go at a pace, a logical pace, that doesn't leave the person going, I don't know where we are, I'm lost, I don't know what... And that pace is really important mathematically, and it feels a little bit like a kind of walking pace that, uh, you know, it's not... Um, you know, we're, we're walking now and we're taking steps and it's, it's not, oh, I'm not looking at every single stone on the path. That's not, that would be just too slow if we, you know, we ground to a halt and we're, we're observing everything. No, no, there's certain assumptions you're allowed to walk at a certain pace. Um, but if you run too fast, then you leave um, your uh, kind of fellow mathematicians behind and they just don't know where you're going. So, so I do feel that the, 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 that a, a logical proof is a bit like mapping out for the first time a pathway in the kind of logical, this kind of abstract world of mathematics. Um, and that the pace is quite important uh, to help people to follow you along that path. I mean, I love walking partly because every walk is very often a little puzzle. Um, so I, I do want to, yeah, oh, I just, we're going to stop here because this is my favourite Moomin Troll character. Oh, there um, so there it is. Uh, this is Snufkin. Um, who, Snufkin is a, a kind of wanderer. He doesn't really spend time in Moomin Valley. He doesn't have a house. He appears every now and again. Um, and uh, somehow he is an explorer. And I've always felt that Snufkin is the character I most identify with in, in the Moomin Troll book, books. So he, he's, he's my kind of um, favourite character. He's got a very hearty pipe. He does, yes. I don't smoke a pipe, but uh, my supervisor from my PhD used to talk about mathematical problems in, in numbers of pipes, rather like Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> so how many pipes he had to smoke in order to tease out a problem. But uh, <laughs> I, I quite enjoy when I'm not quite sure where I'm going and I have to kind of work it out. This makes me think about your attitude to different forms of art, different forms of science. I, I did read somewhere that you'd said, you described language as a low dimensional form of communication. That this seemed to be a slight pejorative tone. Oh. And I, I, I don't know whether you intended it or not, but I, it made me think about your recent play, I is a Strange Loop, which you, you play the part of X, Victoria Gould plays the part of Y, you wrote it. There's the mathematical X, and there's the, 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 the much more thoughtful, philosophical why. One of the notes of the play really is that they are kind of interconnected variables, X and Y, they both need each other. But there's no doubt when I watch the performance of it that Y is a lot gloomier 
a lot more despairing, <laughs> a lot more insistent on limitation because she uses language to communicate. X is a perky little chap who's constantly seeking new numbers and has an overriding <laughs> jolliness about him. Was that on purpose? I think what we were trying to capture is that Y is really part of the physical universe and X is part of kind of abstract possible uh, universe. So uh, I feel it's a tension between almost mathematics and physical reality. For X, he, he hasn't contemplated the fact that things might be finite and have an end uh, because in, in mathematics you, you know, numbers don't run out. So his world <laughs> is quite an optimistic one, whilst Y, who's bound in the physical universe, is experiencing, as you say, these limitations and she's come up against the fact that well infinity might be a good idea but does it actually physically exist anywhere and uh, in particular she's exploring her own mortality uh, which y, X has never even thought about because mathematics doesn't die mathematics goes on forever it has existed forever it's 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 endless you know at both ends um, and so uh, the the kind of uh, tension uh, and the sense of optimism from X and the pessimism from Y is kind of that tension between infinite possibilities in mathematics and the finite possibilities uh, when you map that mathematics onto a physical universe. Um, so I think it's that tension, the tension between uh, a kind of the world of the mind and the world of the body in a way. It comes back to Wittgenstein actually that um, Wittgenstein is playing these word games and so the idea is this word what what does it correspond to and you have to then give lots of examples of it and you begin to realize okay dog can be very many different sorts of dogs um, uh, and and so uh, again it's a little bit like that map that you don't want a map that is an absolute replica of the land because that's not helpful so language is a very clever map which um, clumps things together with words and, and we need that in order to be able to navigate things. So uh, the high dimensional version is where there's all the detail there. So one dog is, is a different from each other dog and, and therefore deserves its own point in multi-dimensional space. But if we're going to navigate this space, we have to collapse these and put these together in, in one point on a lower dimensional space. So all things to sit on our chairs? Yes, well, yes, and then you begin to realise, oh, actually, but I can sit on something else which I'm not going to call a chair, and then you have to, to uh, enlarge. I mean, that's what's interesting. You, you, you probably start with a very low-dimensional space, and, and then you start to see uh, complexity in there, and you need a new name for something, so naming something. And I, that happens in mathematics. Naming uh, a structure which uh, is emerging is a very important part of the creative process. We just stopped here, actually, my... Um, because um, I love this pump house. This is uh, an old Victorian pump house that was used to pump the water um, uh, to, to the houses in London. It's not, not used now, but it's a lovely little cafe and it's an uh, exhibition space. Um, uh, so it's kind of um, ra rather beautiful part of the, the wetlands. Looks like another, another little moomin up there with a brolly. Yeah, there's a little May, Mai. Uh, she's uh, another kind of rather rascally character um, and, and in fact if you turn around we've got uh, Moomin Troll himself sitting underneath the, the tree. Oh nice shady spot. Yes. I'm exactly. getting very hot aren't you? Um, it's <laughs> a lovely day I mean yeah exactly well I mean why, why don't we go 
I think we should return a different way. I think we should do yeah. some kind of strange loop. Yeah, a strange loop, exactly. Um, I want to the, ask you about strange loops. Yes. How does a strange loop differ from a circle? How, how yes. if you're genuinely making a strange loop, how are you not playing an Escher-type trick where the drawing is suggesting that you're going up some stairs but actually you're coming down when you turn the bend and it, there's an impossibility to the drawing? Uh, well, actually, what you can do is... Um, I mean, it's, it's rather similar to the way you can take, um, like, 20 people and uh, each sits on the lap of the person behind them um, and if you make a circle, everybody is sitting on the lap of somebody behind them and this is an example of a strange loop because you know start with you if you start it you'd say um okay well the first person is at the bottom of the hierarchy they're going to be sit everyone's going to be sitting on on this person but um by by looping it round you find that there's nobody's at the bottom or top of this hierarchy this is actually really important because um i mean we're we're, we're both based at the university of oxford um and there's a very important building there which uses this trick to, to um, in its construction, which is the Sheldonian Theatre. So the Sheldonian Theatre, built by Christopher Wren, um, is, is rather special because uh, it's got this amazing roof and no columns supporting the roof. So how does it do that? There are no columns. It's just actually on the, on the wall on the outside. And Christopher Wren solved this because he used beams which play the same sort of trick of being sort of one on top of the other, uh, sharing the load. And so the load is actually taken out to the far extreme. So it, it isn't actually a strange loop, but it's using a similar idea of people sitting on people and sitting on people such that um, all of the load is put on the edges. Um, of course, Christopher Wren, great architect, but he was also a mathematician, trained at, did his mathematics at Wadham, which is where I did my maths as an undergraduate. So, um, but uh, the important thing about a strange loop, and this is, uh, you know, why is it different to a circle? It's, it's, uh, it's a good point. It has to have uh, layers of the hierarchies, which seem to be sort of either increasing in complexity or um, uh, layered on top of another layer, um, but it becomes a strange loop where suddenly you get to what you think is the top layer, um, but then you realise, well, I'm, I'm down back at the bottom again. So there's the, the, this strange loop, then this layers of hierarchy, then you realise there isn't a beginning or an end to it. It, it is this kind of loop which seems to, to be growing, 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 but then comes back to the beginning again. And, um, and, and Escher's... Uh, kind of paradoxical drawings are a great example of that. This, the staircase which you seem to be climbing but then you get back to the beginning again. But, um, I mean, one of my heroes is Douglas Hofstadter who wrote Gödel Escher Bach. Um, and in fact, I sort of took the title for my play um, from his investigation that consciousness, I, uh, is actually a strange loop. That... Um, what the brain does is it, it has kind of two levels of hierarchy, which it's a bit like the, that picture of the hand drawing a hand, so um, that we are able to have thoughts, but we can also have thoughts about thoughts within that same system. Um, so the same language can be used both to have thoughts, but also to talk, talk about thoughts. And so... Um, and this is actually something 
I mean, we still don't understand consciousness, but in mathematics, we have understood something very deep about our subject called Gödel's incompleteness theorem, which uh, was the revelation that not every true statement of mathematics um, has a proof. And the way Gödel did this was to use a kind of idea of a strange loop. He, you know, a mathematical equation can be simply an, a statement about numbers, but he used a cunning code to also show that a mathematical equation can be talking about mathematics. So this is a kind of strange loop because he uses the same language, but it's kind of got different layers of hierarchy, which sort of um, start to be circular. And he uses that circularity um, in the same way as you can do like a linguistic paradox and say, um, you know, this statement is false. Um, well, that's kind of starts you in this kind of loop. So you say, is it true? Well, if it's true, then it's saying it's false. So that's can't be. So if it's but it's false, then that means it's true, and you've got this kind of uh, got into this circular paradox. But in mathematics, you can use a similar trick that Gödel did, actually, to tease out that there are true statements which can't be proved using a similar kind of. A first sight looks like a paradox, but then gets resolved by the revelation that there there are things which are true which can't be proved. So. I think Douglas Hofstadter said about strange loops which is really a variation on what you've been saying. I think his quote was something like, uh, a strange loop finally gives the capacity for the brain to be aware of itself. Yes, because he used Gödel's incompleteness theorem as a kind of um, guide to trying to understand what's happening in the brain. And Gödel's incompleteness theorem is very interesting because you need, uh, this relates to language again, you need the language to be sufficiently complex such you can start to do the encoding of um, uh, equations talking about mathematics itself. And if you don't include enough mathematics in your language, it can't talk about itself. And so uh, Douglas Hofstadter uh, thinks, well, perhaps the same thing's happening in the brain, that there is really almost a switch, a moment when the complexity has been reached, that the encoding in the brain is complex enough that it can formulate in that code thoughts about itself. And that maybe we're seeing, you know, with other, the big question is how many other animals have the same level of consciousness and self-awareness that we do? M maybe, you know, my cat at home, it just isn't complex enough to be able to, to in that language, uh, formulate thoughts about thoughts. Um, and that's, you, you can see this real switching point in mathematics where you have to include enough structure to be able to, to get this working. I'm really interested in that interconnection between mathematics and language, mathematics and literature. What do you think happens to literature that expressly uses mathematics? I'm thinking in particular of Raymond Queneau's <laughs> of sonnets. Yes. So he starts with 10 sonnets. Each sonnet has 14 lines. But because each individual line of each individual, individual sonnet has been snipped underneath the word, so you end up with 14 little flaps on every single page. Mathematically, I think you end up with 10 to the power of 14, which 100, I think... 100,000 billion 100,000 billion, that's what it's, 100 milliards de, de poèmes, he calls it. Yes, exactly. Um, and I assume the math is right. Does that show Raymond Queneau being a real annoying <laughs> show-off? Or does that allow maths to play with literature in a way that makes more than the sum of its parts? Well, I think, you know, he was part of this Ulipo movement, um, which was really fascinated 
in whether mathematical structures might uh, inspire new directions in literature. Um, and the, the group was sort of trying out different algorithms or, or, or different ideas. I mean, I rather like n plus seven. You, you move every noun. So to be or not to be, that is the question. You move question along seven in the dictionary and it becomes to be or not to be, that is the quiche. I mean, what a, <laughs> but it makes you think about the, the poem that you apply this to in a kind of new way. So it might be a healthy... Um, so at first sight, it seems rather absurd, but it might actually reveal structure in the poem that is being masked by the meaning of the words. So, um, I think uh, Quinault's sonnets actually are really interesting because they reveal something important about mathematics, in fact. Because when you look at the Quinault poems, and there are you know 100,000 billion of them, if you read them one a minute, I calculated if you, the first Diplodocus that evolved, um, if they'd been reading one a minute, they would have finished them by about now. And um, it's interesting because I actually was using these um, a couple of days ago, talking to somebody, and we made a Quinault poem. And the chances are we took the seventh and eighth um, lines in turn and I read it out and we were kind of... Uh, rather enjoyed the fact this is probably the first time this poem had ever been recited. You know, the original Raymond Quinault poem. Um, and, uh, and it actually was a bit rubbish, <laughs> frankly, because it just didn't sort of connect. The, the creativity in, uh, in doing a project like that is, is getting a system of lines that it doesn't matter what order you do, they, they sort of tell an interesting story or they become an interesting poem. Um, there's another interesting version of this which is uh, Mozart's um, dice waltz. Each bar has 11 choices for the bar and you use a set of dice to choose which bar it is and it's pretty pretty good because Mozart has made sure that whatever bar you choose it somehow connects together to make quite a, a beautiful waltz. Um, but I think that uh, the Quinault case is um, kind of illustrates what we're doing when we're writing anything, whether it be music, poetry, literature, or mathematics, is that there's a very important role that the, what we choose to elevate, to uh, share with our audience, is part of the creativity. So uh, my feeling is Quinault isn't making any choices. He's, he's you know, we're randomly generating things. And the, the hope is that every now and again, you get a gem out of this that you wouldn't have got otherwise. Um, so I think that many people think that as a mathematician what I'm doing is proving all the true statements about numbers and geometry and and that's a bit like trying to read all of the Quinault sonnets and actually that, that isn't the point. What we're trying to do is to pick out those true statements which are interesting, that tell an interesting story, that are surprising, um, that have a little jeopardy in, involved. Actually, one of the inspirations for my play was um, Borges' Library of Babel, because this is a story about a library that contains every book that it's possible to write. So it's like Quinault on speed, um, you, you know, the, and you think, well, gosh, this library contains everything. But then you realise it contains nothing because nobody's made any choices. So our library in Oxford, the Bodleian, is full of books that people feel are worth reading they've been made a selection and the same is true of mathematics and i think people don't realize that we are making choices about those mathematical stories which um uh ha have something that's worth sharing with an audience that with surprise get you somewhere completely new um so uh so i think that's kind of interesting that the quinault it isn't universally successful in fact i think it only works on every now and again that you get a 
combination of lines that is, is quite sweet when put together. And mathematics is about finding which of those sonnets, mathematical sonnets, is the one that's, that's worth reading out aloud to you know, your seminar audience. The novel that I can think of that I think does actually use mathematics successfully, um, and actually it goes back to Strange Loops in fact, I don't know if you've read Ali Smith's How to Be Both, but no. this is a novel which has half of it is a contemporary character and half of it is a historical character based on, loosely but gender changed, an artist from hundreds of years before. So you go into a bookshop, 50% of the copies will start with that modern section, but 50% of the copies will start with the historical section. So when I'm teaching that novel to students, I try and represent it as, as a form of Strange Loop in the sense that when you get to the end of whichever copy you happen to have acquired in the library or down the bookshop, you're compelled almost to actually go back to the beginning again to somehow have read the book that the person sitting next to you has read, which of course you can never do. So it's this continuous Escher kind of staircase trudge. Yes, uh, and I think that's a limited enough example in a way that it, it, it then becomes interesting because it, it affects your rereading when you're then challenged with, no, but you can do this in a different order. Where I think that um, mathematics and literature have an interesting intersection it is when um, somebody is using a particular stru mathematical structure to help um, frame their, their writing and push them into realms that they may not have explored without the constraint of that structure. I mean, go back to Stravinsky, he said, I can only be creative under huge constraints. I need to be pushed in a kind of weird direction. So I think that's where mathematics can sometimes be useful as a structure. Um, and I mean, some of the best examples, I think, uh, for example, Arcadia, Tom Stoppard's play, I, I think is genius because he he layers these different time uh, frames but he also you know there's a lot of talk of fractals in there but he does actually create a fractal structure in the play as well because he um the the period drama is set over uh, a space of several years the modern drama is set over a space of several days and you get this compression this kind of scaling of time uh, it, it, which has a kind of fractal character to it so he's using a structure which is talked about in the play but it also uh, uh, frames the structure of the play and I think that's you know I, I took that as an inspiration for I as a strange loop that I wanted the the play itself to have a mathematical shape and we we played around with lots of different shapes when we were devising it um, we thought about the fact that there are multiple directions that one can take in, in, in on the theatre you can go into the wings you can go through a trapdoor you can go out into the audience so it almost has a shape that's emerging a bit like the shape in the Library of Babel um, but eventually we, we settled on this idea of a Merbius strip where um, it's like a, a cylinder where you make a twist in it and this shape is, is very intriguing because when you go around it, it seems to only have actually one side and and things get flipped over and so we thought that's really nice we'll we'll use this shape of, of uh, to actually flip the characters by the end of the play that um, X wants to realise the physical universe and Y wants to escape to the abstract world. Um, and again, it's rather similar to the, the novel you mentioned of Ali Smith's, that um, what would be very interesting is to run the play again, uh, but now the characters have been swapped over. So my character is now comes on as Y and Victoria plays X. And we see how the dynamic changes with a change of the sexes playing each of the characters. So, so I, I think they're, 
there are interesting ways that mathematics can be used in literature um, to kind of uh, produce a new narrative structure. I thought it was interesting in your play. I, I watched the play, but I also read the play. And uh, there's some wonderful jokes, Shakespearean jokes, which you probably get more by reading the script than by watching the play. But there's that fantastic speech from Henry V and you, you, you swap a, a circle for a square, which really made me laugh. Yes. But actually what I also thought was that, that really Shakespeare himself was a mathematician. I mean, obviously he's endlessly playing with shapes and lines and syllables and, and, and rhythm and so on. But you know that great line from King Lear to Cordelia, nothing will come of nothing. I mean, if that's not mathematical, I don't know what is. You can't multiply by zero. Of course, there's all the um, uh, iambic pentameters and things like that. But, but he uses some mathematical tricks in some cunning ways that really surprised me. So, so most of the lines are 10 syllables. But when he changes that, you know something's important. So, for example, I, I discovered that um, whenever he talks about magic, he takes the 10 down to seven syllables. So in Midsummer Night's Dream, you get lots of speeches with seven syllables. And seven is a kind of interesting number because it's a prime number again. It's not as uh, kind of obviously rhythmical. It's not something you can march to. It's got this odd beat to it. So you kind of wake up and it sort of uh, makes you sort of uh, listen. The other one is when he changes things and makes them a little bit longer. What's the most famous line in Shakespeare? To be or not to be, that is the question. It's not 10, it's 11. Um, I think this is sometimes, well, you can probably tell me, it's called a feminine ending for some reason. But, but for me, that 11, again, it's a prime number and it makes you jump because it's breaking your expectations and suddenly you listen to that speech because something is going on. But the, the one that really proved to me that, Ma that Shakespeare, I think, is a mathematician at heart is the end of The Tempest. Because at the end of The Tempest, uh, you've got Ferdinand and Miranda playing chess. And if you look at the speech that they say to each other as they're playing chess, um, it's actually eight words and eight lines of eight words. The whole thing is laid out as a chessboard. And, you know, you don't do that randomly. <laughs> that for me is Shakespeare playing games with the kind of embedding kind of little mathematical games inside the text. So can we reach a form of accommodation then between the arts, science and mathematics so that the line essentially that's emerging from your play, this idea of the interconnected variables, that, that each does need the other for the other to sort of flourish or to say all that it needs to say? There's always a common thread here which, which is that we're all trying to understand the kind of physical natural world around us and very often the thing which is common to both of us uh, will have its source in nature and, and my feeling is yeah we've developed these wonderful different languages to try and navigate this very high dimensional shape and each of us gets a glimpse of it. Mathematics is very good at seeing one of the shadows but it doesn't tell us everything and the music uh, gives us another way of listening to this object but it doesn't tell us everything. Um, literature uh, and another angle but if you put all of these together all of these multiple languages then you start to get a sniff of what's going on in our universe. Mm.